God rules. What does that mean? I was impressed several years ago, leaving a midweek meeting, I saw a student's binder on a chair here in the auditorium, and scrawled on the front cover of that binder were the simple words, seniors rule. I, that might have been yours, Luke. Was that yours? <laughs> Simply translated means seniors are in control. We seniors are so superior, so vastly advanced intellectually and socially and athletically and in every way that you shouldn't even bother arguing with us. Just follow us where we lead and do what we say. When a car spins out on the freeway, we say, that car is out of control. When actually, it's out of the driver's control. The car and driver are actually following the laws, the natural laws that the Lord has set down for, uh, for vehicles, for steel and rubber and aluminum, glass, and the automobile and the driver are well under the Lord's superintendence. We find, based on the authority of God's Word, consistent with His will, His all-might, His all-knowledge, His everywhere presence, God rules. We think that politics today is careening down a path uh, on a spin-out, out of control, when actually it's the Lord who raises up presidents and prime ministers, and it's the Lord who deposes them. He's, he brings them down, and they fade into history. It's the Lord who does these things. This is half our lesson today, is understanding and appreciating the sovereignty of God. If we understand that, we're, uh, we're halfway done. How does the Most High exercise His sovereignty in the world today? Let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, we're studying the life of Daniel this morning. And we have some beautiful testimonies, some beautiful, beautiful verses that speak of the sovereignty of God. In the book of Daniel, we'd like to, to just uh, settle here for a few minutes and enjoy the, the comfort, the assurance that God is sovereign, God is ruling. In Daniel 2.21, And he, that is God, changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Where does wisdom come from? Wisdom comes from the Lord. Where does power come from? Where does authority come from? Where does the right to rule come from? They come from the Lord. Changes are His. The seasons are His. He's the one who, uh, who Brings them, brings them to pass. He's in control of circumstances. 
Same chapter, verse 44. And in the days of these kings, speaking of uh, the four earthly kings we'll see later on in the book of Daniel, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, these earthly kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Who's on the throne of this kingdom, by the way? Who would you imagine is the one who has a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? Obviously, it's the Lord Jesus. Verse uh, 26 of chapter 4. At the end of that verse, <clears throat> heaven rules. Heaven rules. You start to, to wonder about uh, life, our lives in particular, our personal lives, and, uh, and wonder at reverses, at uh, bad circumstances, and we have but to look on high. We have but to focus our attention on heaven and remember that heaven rules. Verse 35 of chapter 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Really, the greatest of men, the greatest of women, history's finest, are reputed as nothing before the Lord. Worms. The Lord does according to His will. Whatever He wants to do, He does. Whether it's among the army in heaven or here among the inhabitants of the earth. Who is it? What created being can come before the Lord and say, What are you doing? What are you doing, Lord? We simply don't have the, the intelligence, the wisdom to understand what the Lord is doing on the earth. But He is sovereign. He is wise. He is all-powerful. And uh, He does things right. There's no challenger in time and eternity who can withstand Him, who can resist Him. He is the Lord. In the last part of the Scripture, when history uh, is coming to, an end, <coughs> coming to an end, we have a vision of the great multitude, the sound of mighty thunderings in heaven, and this is what they say, Hallelujah, the Lord omnipotent reigns. And that is a, an appropriate theme of eternity. Hallelujah, the Lord omnipotent reigns. The Lord rules. We see great evidence of that in the book of Daniel. We turn to the very first uh, part of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1. We see in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of ba uh, Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. Who delivered Jehoiakim? 
Did Nebuchadnezzar capture Jehoiakim? Yes. But who gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand? The Lord did in verse 2. Well, wasn't Nebuchadnezzar a great and powerful king? Yeah. But who made Nebuchadnezzar great and powerful? It was the Lord, the sovereign of the universe. We're studying the life of Daniel. Much of the book of Daniel covers prophecy. Very profound, very important, very relevant to us who are believers in the Lord Jesus and and who have not yet believed on the Lord. Uh, We're not going to study the prophecies of Daniel. For that, we recommend uh, Rick's teaching from back in April and May of 2004 on the 70 weeks of Daniel. Very well done. I recommend you, uh, you get those if you haven't already heard that series. We're going to look at the character of Daniel. Specifically, we're going to look at how the servant of God responds to his sovereign master. How does the servant of God respond to his sovereign master? And we're going to do that by looking at uh, four key action words. We're going to look at purify, pray, trust, and warn or witness. We're going to group our study of Daniel under those key words. The Lord Jesus confirms Daniel's authenticity as a prophet. The Lord Jesus quotes Daniel. He holds Daniel's message as authoritative as his own. And so we needn't wonder about um, uh, Daniel's relevance, Daniel's place in history. Daniel's relationship to his God as his servant, as his agent, is indisputable. Noted wonderfully by King Darius, he said, Daniel, servant of the living God, whom you serve continually. Daniel was God's servant. He was known by friend and enemy alike as one who served the Lord continually without interruption. He was faithful to his God. So we want to consider these action words in the context of Daniel's life. The first one is purify. Nebuchadnezzar brought young men from the nation of uh, Judah, the nation of um, uh, of the southern kingdom, and he had instructions to train these young men to serve in his court. So Daniel was uh, had a special opportunity to to learn and to prepare and to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. As part of Daniel's de-judification, if you will, or orientation to Babylonian culture, he was to eat portions from the king's table. In uh, verse, uh, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them so that at that time, at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. How old was Daniel? Different commentators have uh, different ideas about his age. We're not told specifically, but um, 
I read as, as uh, young as 14 years and as old as 20 years. So I'd like to see how many we have here today between the ages of 14 and 20 years old. Joshua? No, I'm sorry. You're not there yet, Joshua. Let me see hands again. I'm sorry. 14 to 20. Okay, this message has particular relevance to you because we're talking about Daniel um, dispossessed of his home, of his family, and taken into a, uh, a foreign land. We'd like to see how Daniel responds. We're not told what was wrong with the king's delicacies, but simply that they were not acceptable to an Israelite, to a, a Hebrew boy, an Israelite uh, boy like Daniel. Were they forbidden by the Lord's dietary restrictions when the Lord left Egypt? Perhaps uh, imagine coming to Daniel with uh, a nice platter of uh, shrimp louis and uh, barbecued pork ribs. That would have been unacceptable by the Lord's law in uh, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. Or had these animals been offered to a pagan deity Daniel, look, fresh meat just sacrificed to the God such and such this morning. Sorry, I will not eat of that. We're not told what the reason was, simply that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He would not partake of this food even from the king's table. To Daniel, the king of Israel was king over Babylon as well. And the key to understanding Daniel's usefulness by the Lord is that he was resolved in his heart. He purposed in his heart what he would do and what he would not do. What does it mean to purpose something in my heart? Verse, uh, verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. To purpose something in my heart is to have convictions about it, to decide in advance that this is what I'm going to do or not do. Convictions come from where? They could come from a number of places. Ideally, convictions come from the Word of God. I have God's Word. I have um, copies of uh, Bible in, in my home. What must I do to develop biblical convictions? I have three or four translations sitting on, on my shelf. What must I do to to translate God's Word into convictions of my own? Well, first of all, I have to read it. I'm not going to develop convictions, young people, if I'm not reading God's Word. Is it enough to read God's Word? I've, I've read it. I've read it uh, several times. I'm familiar with it. What must I then do? I have to believe it. It does me no good to 
carry God's word around in my heart as a, as a historical narrative. I have to believe that it's God's message to me. Young people, is it enough to read it and believe it? I have to obey it. This is where conviction comes from. This is how I build these purposes in my life. I decide in advance what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do based on God's will, God's desire. Young people, you must early develop convictions early in life. These are non-negotiables. That means things that you're not going to compromise under any circumstances because the Lord says so. If we go through life without convictions, we are doomed to bow to the world's pressure. We're doomed to be pressed into the world's mold and to conform to the world. What are we talking about? Young people, what, what's this old guy up front talking about? Convictions about what? Drug use. We're talking about... Um, Illicit drugs, illegal drugs, methamphetamines, marijuana, heroin. I'm not sure what the street names are today. In high school, there was a tremendous pressure. I went to a good high school, but there was a pressure uh, by my friends to, um, to partake of these different mind-altering, mood-changing drugs, and, and I did not have convictions against those. As I was growing up, uh, I realized um, I was approached by a child. I was in high school. I was approached by a child um, offering me drugs in, uh, in my neighborhood. It was a good neighborhood. So you can't, you can't say that there is a safe haven for our children where these, um, these influences are not felt. Drugs are available. Young people, you have to develop convictions. If you wait until the day of battle to arm yourselves, to gird yourselves for war, it's too late. Somebody offers you something and you have no qualms about it, you have no, uh, no convictions against it, you're, uh, you're a victim of your, your peers' pressure. Alcohol use, when, if ever, is a glass of wine appropriate? Why is it wrong to be drunk? What does the Lord say about it? My mom and dad told me it's wrong, and that's true. Especially when mom and dad are speaking from God's Word. But it's not enough. It's not enough for mom and dad to tell me. I have to know personally from God's Word that a thing is true. Read. Believe. Obey. I, I start to, to build convictions about things like illicit drugs and, and drunkenness. When I read verses like that in uh, Isaiah 28 and verse 7, 
but they have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink or out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink and they are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. If the prophets and the priests are erring through wine, through intoxicating drink, where can we go? This was the state of Israel in Isaiah's time. To have a clear mind, we cannot be uh, involved in illicit drug use and drunkenness. Build convictions from God's Word. Sex, courtship, and marriage, hopefully not in that order. We need to build convictions about sex and courtship and marriage. The choice of our friends, what I wear, what movies I watch, how much TV, how long I surf the web, what I see on the web. I, I got a computer. Um, my first computer was uh, not hooked up to the World Wide Web. But um, I got that uh, Internet access and uh, started seeing some of the things come through there. And I had to, to purpose, I had to make a covenant with the Lord that uh, I would not pollute myself, I would not defile myself with uh, things on the Internet. So um, I put, uh, put a verse right there on the top of my computer screen, and I purposed before the Lord that when I started accessing the Internet for pornography, I would shut it down. It was a purpose that I have in my heart and I've carried with me for uh, as long as I've had Internet access. Um, I will not, I will not use that machine for gratifying my, the lust of my flesh. There are good things we must purpose in our hearts. We must decide beforehand. One is um, whom I will marry. Uh, what are the values? What are the standards that I have in a, in a mate? What am I looking for? Um, Very important. The church that I choose for worship and fellowship, prayer and uh, the teaching of the apostles, the Bible teaching, uh, very important to develop good, sound, biblical convictions about where I meet. Uh, we don't want to be like some people who, uh, who move to a, a new city, a new place, and they, uh, they lose their New Testament distinctives in, in fellowship, and they say, oh, I wish... I wish we had that uh, weekly breaking of bread again. I really, really value that. That was very important. Purpose it beforehand and save yourself a world of, world of disappointments. If God is sovereign, why is there a need for purity? If God's going to do things the way He wants to do them, why must I be pure? Because God has chosen to use people for his purposes and he needs them to be devoted to him and not common, not profane to the world. 
God is sovereign. God is Lord. He rules. And he uses sinners redeemed by the blood of Jesus who walk in communion with him. Daniel's usefulness depended on setting standards of purity, separating himself to the Lord before testing, and not just setting standards, but holding to those, keeping those, being faithful to those in the storm of temptation and doubt, realizing that, hey, I've got a conviction here that says I will not do this, and I won't do it, even though my, uh, uh, my mind is telling me I should. And I'll think about uh, later what, uh, what transpired here. For now, I trust the Lord. It was true of Daniel's life, and it should be true of ours. Purity, purify is the first response that we, uh, we see in Daniel. The second one is prayer. God brought Daniel into favor. Chapter 1, verse 9. Again, God is the, is the one moving. God is the one acting. He's the one ruling. God brought him into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17. As for these four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. These young men were taken before the king after their three years of training, and they found a place in the king's court. They, were, they became servants of Nebuchadnezzar. At some point, Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream in uh, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. This was not your normal dream. This was a, a very clear dream. It was uh, as clear as reality, as clear as if he had been there himself. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, troubled by this because he recognized it as a communication from the Lord and he was not able to interpret it he was not able to sleep wasn't able to rest wasn't able to get it out of his mind so he called upon his astrologers but uh, we're going to find Nebuchadnezzar is a very stubborn hard-headed man but he had um, at least the perception to be tired of the interpretations of these Chaldean astrologers they, their interpretations were as vague and muddy, as shallow as a fortune cookies. In fact, um, he one of his uh, criticisms of them is that um, they speak lying and corrupt words. They agree in advance that they're going to speak lying and corrupt words uh, before the king just to say the words that he wants to hear. So, Nebuchadnezzar gets around this. He says, uh, I want you to interpret my dream. And uh, these, uh, this band of, uh, um, of superstitious uh, astrologers says, great, 
uh, you tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation, just like we always have, right? <clears throat> King Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm tired of your, your vague interpretations. They mean nothing to me. Tell me the dream and the interpretation and then I'll know the interpretation is right. Sounds good. He's pretty perceptive as a king. The, uh, the astrologers say, well, uh, king, you have to tell us the dream because uh, we don't know what the dream was. And uh, the king said, um, basically, you're, you're, no, you're no good. Uh, so he decreed that he would wipe them out. He would kill them all. Daniel was included in, uh, in the king's mind in this group of astrologers. So down Daniel Street one day comes uh, a man named Arioch with uh, other executioners and they come up Daniel's sidewalk and uh, Daniel um, says, uh, Arioch, what are you doing here? Uh, Daniel, I got bad news and I, I carry a decree from the king that you are to be executed. And Daniel says, why, why this harsh treatment? Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream and none of his uh, Chaldeans have been able to interpret it. Daniel said, hold on. Tell the king that uh, I need time. I will interpret his dream. Um, he was given time. Arioch went back to, uh, back to the king. And we pick up in chapter 2, verse uh, 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel was no stranger to the prayer meeting. The king's decree was deadly to Daniel and he, Daniel, would pray, but he would also enlist the, the support of his companions in prayer. What's so special about prayer meetings? We, we know the importance of prayer. Why prayer meetings? Couldn't Daniel have just uh, fired off an email to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and alerted them that their lives were in danger and they needed to pray? The Lord Jesus tells us why prayer meetings are so important. In Matthew 18 and verse 19, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst of them. Don't know what uh, Daniel had in the way of uh, Matthew uh, 18, 19, and 20, but we have this tremendous promise of the Lord Jesus that we have a a, an effectiveness together that we don't have alone. We meet together and agree and pray and the Lord says, I will answer that. I will answer that prayer in a special way. And not only do we have this special effectiveness, but the Lord Jesus promises His presence where two or three are gathered together in My name, I am there in the midst of them. So we have not only this uh, this new effectiveness, but we've got the promised presence of the Lord Jesus. But there's a special word that uh, 
we should note in this verse, and it is that word agree. If we look at the original, the original is symphonio. It's a musical term. Agree. What does symphonio remind you of musically? Symphony. Okay, it is in fact where we get our English word symphony. When believers are gathered together in one accord, they're agreed on a purpose or a set of purposes, a set of needs. It is music to the Savior's ears. He guarantees effectiveness. He guarantees His presence. What a motivation to our to attend our midweek prayer meeting. And not only midweek, but whenever we have a crisis, whenever we have uh, an executioner knocking on our door and saying, sorry, you, you have to die. Time to get together and pray. Time to gather together. It could be uh, the deathly illness of a loved one. Will you come over and pray with me? The Lord has guaranteed His effectiveness and His presence in our gathering together. How much sweeter the music would be if we had our first violin here in our symphony midweek. The piccolo player, where is the piccolo? We need another trombone in our orchestra. How much sweeter to the Lord Jesus would be the sound. Daniel gathered his companions together and they prayed. The Lord answered Daniel's prayer the Lord revealed his secret to Nebuchadnezzar in a vision to Daniel. The king, in his anxiety, could not sleep. Daniel, with the executioner's axe hanging over his head, slept with the promise of God's provision as his pillow. And the Lord revealed his secret in a, a vision as Daniel slept. Wonderful to, to be able to pray and expect the Lord's answer and to be able to sleep through that as Daniel did. Purify, pray. And the third response to our sovereign God is to warn or to witness. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a, a vision. That there was a great tree, a very fruitful tree, and it fed the animals of the earth. But this tree was going to be chopped down. And uh, just the stump remaining. It was another troublesome vision. Um, this time, Nebuchadnezzar called for Daniel directly. And we have, in chapter 4, we have uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually narrating the circumstances of uh, this dream and its interpretation. Daniel says, oh, I wish this uh, dream was about someone else, Nebuchadnezzar. This dream is about you. You are the one the Lord's going to take out of your, uh, of your kingdom out of your uh, uh, rule for seven years. You're going to feed like an ox. You're going to uh, 
to be damp with the dew of heaven. In verse uh, 27, chapter 4, verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. No, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was to be driven from his throne, even from human companionship for seven years. Daniel was in an awkward position. He enjoyed the king's trust. He was in a, a position of great trust. But uh, the king was in a position of great danger. <clears throat> so uh, what do you do in a situation like that? Do you uh, pull back? You, you keep quiet and you just let things run their course? Or do you uh, risk personal safety and say, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to repent before the Lord because uh, I see what's happening to you, about to happen to you as a judgment against you. Daniel took the second course. He warned Nebuchadnezzar, you need to, you need to get right with the Lord. You need to repent. You need to turn from your, your wickedness, your idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar was very proud, arrogant, hard-headed, stubborn, and um, had to endure seven years' humiliation in the wilderness before he would turn to the Lord. He did not heed Daniel's warning. We, who know the Lord Jesus, should not hold back because we think our prospects are unlikely, because we think that um, the person that I'm talking with is hard-headed and stubborn and arrogant. The Lord wants us to witness. He wants us to warn, and we should take that, uh, take that mandate and, and do it. David wrote, I speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. If the Lord is sovereign, why must I witness? If the Lord's going to save people, if he's going to do his will, he's going to have his way, why do I need to witness? Why doesn't the Lord write the gospel on the sky, in the sky? He could arrange the stars to, uh, to spell it all out for me. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord does rule. And he's chosen to use earthen vessels to carry the excellence of his power, his glory, because it pleases him, because he is honored by that, because it, even, it shines even brighter, his, his glory, that here we are, sinners, saved by his grace, communicating that message to other sinners. It delights him, and uh, it glorifies him. Trust is the fourth and final word we want to consider this morning. Purify, pray, warn, and finally trust. In chapter 6, Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene and uh, Darius is now ruling over the kingdom of Babylon. 
He appointed Daniel one of three governors, and he appointed 120 satraps. These were uh, sub-rulers, sub-governors, and these satraps were um, jealous, apparently, of Daniel's favor, of Daniel's position in the kingdom. And so they invented a trap to kill Daniel. They appealed to the king's vanity, knowing Daniel's devotion to the Most High God. They said to Darius, um, uh, O king, you're so great. Why not for the next 30 days we will restrict all prayer to you? Darius uh, foolishly signed the decree. And so this decree was published around Babylon. Notice to all loyal subjects of His Majesty the King, Monday, January 11th, that's tomorrow, through February, Tuesday, February 9th, you shall pray to Darius alone. Should you pray to anyone else, you will be thrown into a den of lions. Uh, how many have uh, been to the San Francisco Zoo? Is the lion house still at the zoo? I think so. We were talking about this at work um, recently. <clears throat> that uh, How many of you have been at the lion house at feeding time? All right. What, uh, what do you notice about the lion house at feeding time? <clears throat> it's loud. <laughs> I got up to the rail, I'm not sure the rail's still there, I hope it is, <clears throat> in front of the cage, and uh, I stood in front of a lion uh, eight feet away who was hungry, and he was roaring, and I could feel the breath of that lion on each roar, and it was, uh, it was a commanding presence, believe me. I wasn't thinking about uh, groceries or... Uh, or work the next day, he had my attention. So if, um, if you're faced with, uh, with being thrown into a den of lions, it's pretty severe. It's pretty harsh. It's not the way to go. Verse 10 of chapter 6, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. The decree was official. It bore the king's signature. The, ca the uh, decree was substantial. It carried the uh, penalty of a violent death. But Daniel preferred the lion's den to a day without prayer. In the book of Acts, we read of, the, of Peter and the apostles when they were confronted by the Sanhedrin and uh, they were told not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Um, they said simply, we ought to obey God rather than men. <clears throat> Daniel did not panic. Daniel did not run. Daniel did not bow to the letter of the decree. Daniel went to his house, opened the windows to Jerusalem and prayed as he had always prayed. He didn't start praying when the decree was signed. He didn't stop praying when the decree was signed. 
he prayed to the Lord, to the Most High God. Well, let's bring this home for us. <clears throat> let's say instead of uh, praying to Darius, the U.S. Supreme Court says, um, no more prayer meetings. You're not allowed to pray. You're not allowed to gather for the purpose of prayer in, uh, in the United States anymore. What would you do? Go underground. Would you pray? Would you gather together for prayer? Or what if the government said, no conversions are allowed to other religions under penalty of death. You convert to um, the Christianity, you will die. Would you continue to witness even though you knew that your own life was at stake as you witnessed to these other people? In some countries, it is uh, uh, under penalty of death that, uh, that you witness to others. Would you trust the Lord for your safety as you went about his business? Daniel did, and the Lord rescued him. In uh, verse 22, Daniel was thrown into the den of lions, and uh, Daniel was able to answer Darius and say, My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Daniel was not an inactive participant. Daniel, yes, he was thrown into the lion's den, but he, um, he had faith. He trusted God that the Lord would, uh, would bring him out. It says of Daniel in Hebrews 11, through faith he stopped the mouths of lions. It wasn't merely a sovereign act of God, but God was looking to Daniel for faith as Daniel looked to the Lord for his deliverance, for his rescue. And so we are called, we who know the Lord, we who serve the Lord as a sovereign most high, we are called to faith, we're called to belief if we are to be used of him, if we're to serve Our two great facts this morning, two great considerations. The Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. And the sovereign of the universe expects a response from his subjects. Purity, prayer, witness, and trust. How well am I responding to my sovereign Lord? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the life of Daniel. We thank you that you are sovereign. You showed that in this particular life. We thank you for how eloquently that, uh, that comes through this, uh, this book of Daniel. And uh, we thank you that we have before us very clearly how we should respond to you as our sovereign. Thank you that you rule. Thank you that you invite us to serve you as the... Most High God, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.